Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Hey. Ooh, you sound tired. I'm a little tired. It's been a long year. It's been a long year. And I think, I mean, I think it's maybe time for a break. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So to our lovely listeners, this is going to be our last show for a few weeks. Don't worry. Just a few weeks. We will be back on August 15th. So fret not. But we're just going to take a little, you know, end of summer break. That's such a great idea, Sandy. Like, (laughs) I really feel like I need a break. (laughs) (laughs) Just a break from life. Um, And uh, in addition to people to thank today, we're going to try a little something new, which is that we're going to try to answer a question on the air and like, let us know what you think. And so we've got this question that we received from Becky Hone. And we're going to answer it for you, Becky. Thanks for listening. Yes. Now, before we answer uh, Becky's question and get on to tonight's episode, which is going to talk uh, more generally about rhetoric. What's rhetoric? Why should we talk about rhetoric? When's it used effectively? And what does it all mean for the left? Before we get to that, there's going to be a couple of other very uh, short but very important topics that we talk about too. And before all of that, we uh, want to... Uh, give a shout out to the folks at Canada Land Commons and Arshi Man. So since we've started to do ads, which I know, I mean, I I hate and Sandy hates, but um, we were approached to um, talk about other podcasts that we do like. And so that is something that we're very happy to do. And so this isn't exactly an ad because you're not going to hear it dropped into uh, many, many episodes. But um, we wanted to encourage people to check out Canada Land Commons. Commons has a lot of different seasons. And so it's the kind of podcast that you can listen to if you're going on a road trip or if you're looking to binge something or not. Um, and I have to say, Sandy, um, my favorite two seasons of Canada Land Commons were F the police and the season on long-term care. I thought that they were so fast to get on the issues of long-term care last year. Um, and, the, and, the, and the topic was so personal that it was a really excellent series that I really hope people check out um, if you haven't had too much kind of sad news around long-term care and the pandemic already. Yeah, I too really, really enjoy listening to Canada Land Commons. This season on real estate has been really eye-opening. So if you have been listening this season, that's what it's about, about like how we live and how property has, um, property development has really harmed and shaped the way people live across the country. But um, hands down, my favorite season has been about the police, um, the F the police season. It was really, really excellent. Uh, and, you know, I really commend the work that Archie Mann and team are doing over there. So, yeah, just take a listen to Canada Land Commons. I think you won't be disappointed. We also have a whole bunch of people to thank. So this week, thank you so, so much to uh, listeners who donated for the first time or changed their donation. Uh, specifically, thank you to Carl. Michael, Branamir, Nanette, Jamie, and Kari. Thank you so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. And so Nora and I thought that we might try something a little bit new uh, this week, which is also to answer questions that we've received. So we've got this one question that we've received that we're going to answer on the air. So this is from Becky Hone. Thank you for listening to us. And the question is... Hey, y'all. I was wondering, how do you respond to people criticizing your criticism of the NDP and liberals when every time you bring up something you think they haven't done and they respond with, but they did this or they did that? Mm." I recently got into a discussion with a friend about why I could no longer support the NDP or heaven forbid the idea of an NDP liberal coalition. And I was met with Yeah, but they legalized marijuana and expunged my record. And they vaccinated more people than almost everybody on the planet. Direct quote, by the way. I consider myself an independent lefty, and therefore I always feel like others expect me to support the NDP. And when I don't, and I explain why, I get a shit ton of pushback and reasons why I should. I feel as though just because a government may have done one or two things right It shouldn't negate everything else they've done completely wrong or haven't done at all. Any ideas on how to explain myself 
without getting into a blowout rage debate with people. <laughs> Thank you and keep putting out the great podcasts. Ah, what a, what a great question. <laughs> it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. What do you think? Well, I think um, I think like it's always important to listen to the reasons why your friends might be saying that the liberals are doing good work. Um, and I say this as someone who's like 100 percent not a fan, huge criti- critical person of the liberals. But um, when someone says, oh, you know, they they did expunge my 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 record with with pot legalization. I mean, that required them being dragged to do that, kicking and screaming. They were um, very slow to do some very basic things. And I think that, you know, one of the problems is um, that partisan politics often takes the place of politics when we're discussing discussing politics. And, you know, honestly, outside of a period of an election, I don't see why you would have the debate about whether or not you support the liberals. They're the government. Do you support the government? I mean, I don't support the government, but there's a whole bunch of reasons why I don't support the government. And, you know, you can look at the vaccine um, rollout, which, uh, which you mentioned, and how little the government actually did to coordinate that. That was done off the backs of, of, of experts and workers and healthcare professionals and, and, and people rolling up their sleeves and, and, and people volunteering. Um, and it shows more that we've got a really solid health infrastructure that we need to fight and defend from parties like the Liberal Party, whose uh, cuts, um, they made deep, deep, deep cuts to, to Canada's social spending in the 1990s. And those cuts to this day are what led to the deaths in long-term care and a lot of uh, the other misery around the, the pandemic. And so I personally like to just remove it from the partisan lens and say, okay, let's just talk about it from the perspective of the government and what what has the government done and what has they, what have they not done? And then I think you get into a different location of having the kind of discussion that you have found yourself in. Yeah. I also think, you know, sometimes a blowout rage debate is useful. <laughs> yeah. So don't always avoid that. But uh, I think that what Nora has said is, is spot on. Like, look, uh, yeah, there's, you know, the government is going to do things that uh, make sense. And a lot of that is going to be because of the work that people do on the outside to force them to. And then some of it's going to be because the bureaucracy has built, been built up so intensely um, well uh, in some cases that, you know, oh, roads still exist. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that's, that's government, that's government as well. Like there are going to be things that they do well. That does not mean that they deserve our whole scale support. Does that make sense? Like it does not mean that because roads are good and because they acquiesce to activists who have been fighting um, the criminalization of, of marijuana for so long that they get our whole scale support and we forget that um, they lied about child care and we forget that they lied about pharmacare and we forget that they lied about proportional representation. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they can. There's some things that the government can't do, which is their job as government <laughs> that they do. And there's a lot of things that government should do that is their job as government to do, which they haven't done because the liberals suck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, hey, look, let us know if you like us answering questions on the air. Feel free to send us more. Um, and uh, last week, also, we asked folks in Newfoundland and Labrador to let us know what was happening around the fight back uh, against the, the ridiculous tuition fee increase. And people are hitting the streets. And so solidarity to those folks. OK, Nora. Yes. I, I've got this thing that I have to talk to you about. This isn't jumping into rhetoric yet, which we must get to. But OK, so, you know. Uh, I'm like, I work with, I am an activist with BLM. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. you know this. Um, and we have a, an excellent research team. And about a month ago, or just even, you know, a little bit more than a month ago, I think, they discovered something that I, I still really can't believe <laughs> that is real. And... You know, we we were we were trying to get more information on it before talking about it publicly. But I just at this point think it's uh, you know we need to just put it out there um, and let people know about it because I don't think there's been a single article written about this issue. Hmm. 
Yeah. And before you tell us what that is, I know um, when you first kind of uncovered this, you and I had a conversation about this. And I think it was a good idea that you, you know, waited and tried to find out more information and, and tried to get journalists to write about this before announcing it, because it seems so weird. It is hella strange. It is very weird. Okay, so we're doing this project where we're trying to get uh, information on the use of force that police uh, police bodies and how they use it across the country. Okay, so we're submitting freedom of information requests to police departments and agencies or bodies or whatever they call themselves across Canada. And um, that's going like you might expect. <laughs> many denials of these freedom of information requests, many appeals. Um, but we got a very strange response from the Hamilton Police Service. And that response was not just, hey, we're not going to give you this information. Thanks for coming out, which was kind of the way the rest of them went. This response was, hey, we're not going to give you this information because we destroyed it as per oh. the Police Services Act. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> what? We were like, sorry, they destroyed? They destroyed the use of force information that they have because of the Police Services Act? I was like, mm. You know, I've read through the Police Services Act many a time in the last uh, decade and uh, the Police Services Act in Ontario. And I have never seen that. So, you know, we have a legal researcher and she, she goes searching and she says it's not in the Police Services Act. It's in a regulation of the Police Services Act. And what the regulation says is when someone, when a police officer uses force, they are required to make a report. That report is created in part A and part B. Part B of the report contains things like identifying information from the officer and, and other information that you might want to know. So things that we had asked for in the, the FOIs were like the gender of the police officer um, that uh, was using force, uh, um, what type of force was used, uh, et cetera. And it says in the regulation that part B of the use of force report that is created and delivered to the chief of police or, or supervisor or whomever must be destroyed within 30 days of receipt. Wow. <laughs> we were like, wait, <laughs> what? Why would you create a use of force report and then mandate that it be destroyed within 30 days. That seems really strange. Now there are some exceptions. It, it like, there's like an exception of if, if the use of force report um, outlines that there needs to be more training for someone, then it, then it could remain on file for no longer than two years. It must be destroyed within two years, but otherwise it's within 30 days. Wow. Wow. So we looked to try to find like, when, when was this submitted? Who, who, like, what was the reason for it? Like, was there a debate? Um, you know, like this can't, was this this way all the time? Like, when did this shift? And we found that it was implemented in the summer of 20. 10. Ooh. Nora, um, do you remember anything interesting happening in the summer of 2010 that may have had to do with policing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember really well this um extra this training exercise that like all of Canada's police forces all showed up in Toronto. They spent a billion dollars on it and then they just cracked open our heads for a fucking weekend while the world's most powerful piece of shit like had a meeting about how powerful they are down the street. It was the G20. Yeah, I think they called that training exercise the G20. And so here we are sitting on this information that, uh, you know, just after the G20 happened, this regulation was imposed. And so during this time, all of the, the media is really focused on what's happening at the G20. 
And this regulation is quietly imposed. There's, I cannot find a single article about it. I can't find a single person who knows anything about it. And there it is. Um, use of force reports have been apparently being uh, destroyed in the province of Ontario um, within 30 days uh, by police departments. And we cannot find a similar uh, uh, rule in any other province. What the fuck? It's so not surprising that the that like another example of Canada's information regime just like to 100 percent uphold power, uphold violence, make it impossible for average people to fucking learn anything about what happens behind closed doors or in a situation where maybe there's only one witness or there's no witnesses and there's police force used. And and so, I mean, this is a shocking piece of information that the that they would be permitted to delete information about what happened. I mean, there's literally no justification for that. We really need to have better records in general, and keeping records is a really important part of keeping any state security force accountable. Um, but this, I mean, as much as I say it's shocking, it's also not shocking at all. And I, I, I'm, <laughs> you know, going back to. The question we started at the beginning of the episode, how do you talk about the Liberals being bad? <laughs> this <laughs> this would have been passed by the Liberal government of Ontario in the in the shadow of the G20, um, knowingly done in a way that would be very difficult to locate. And, and you know, like I had gone through Hansard trying to see if I could find any reference to any of these orders in council, which, of course, there are none. Um, Hansard's the record of, of debates within the Ontario Legislative Assembly or within any legislative assembly. And it's it's just like, yeah, fuck, this is this is how shit operates in this country. Um, and, you know, in the last three weeks, there's been seven people killed in confrontations with the police. Um, the SIU last week announced that police showed up to arrest a 60 something year old man in Ottawa. He left. He answered the door. He left the room. He was dead. Literally, that's all we get from the SIU. The the end. This was the, the and then, no the SIU's report of you know investigating and find out. And it's like, sorry, what do you mean? Like, did he have a heart attack? Did he have a gun? Did he like? What, did they murder him? Like, what the what is this kind of like storytelling that the public gets? And journalists have just become so used to it that it just doesn't even make any news anymore. It's like, oh well, there's nothing to report because mm -hmm. we don't know what's going on. And then the only information they do get comes from the police. And so all that we hear are from the police side. I mean, to also go back to the beginning of the episode, this is why the F the Police series is so, so powerful because Archie goes through some of these like different violence cases mm -hmm. of different police services across Canada. And it's like, what the, f how the fuck did that happen? And no one went to jail and there was no accountability and there was no public reckoning with the crimes of police forces within this country. Yeah. So anyway, if you're out there and you're a journalist listening to this and want to uh, like look further into it and write some stories about this, this deserves deeper, deeper investigation um, and more than uh, perhaps we we will be able to, to handle over at uh, BLM or can, could properly do. This d deserves um, like, you know, a, a professional really looking into this. Who was responsible for this regulation? What ministry uh, submitted it? Um, why, 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 just why, <laughs> um, and what have we lost? What information have we lost? I mean, the, the, it is really stunning. It is like the, in the language of the regulation that this information must be destroyed. It says shall be destroyed. I, you know, I, this is, <laughs> that is just so stunning to me and, uh, it really deserves, uh, a deeper, deeper look. Okay, before we get into rhetoric, again, there's one other thing, Nora, that I think we really have to talk about. Yes. So, Sandy, I'm sure you've seen the news this week. I hope everybody who listens to the show has seen as well. But the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, the BCCLA, just announced that their executive director, Harsha Walia, has resigned. And it is in the wake of Harsha publishing a tweet that uh, captured the sentiment of so many people, which is in the aftermath of the uh, discoveries or the rediscoveries of hundreds and hundreds of children's bodies at residential school sites dotted across Canada. Uh, there was news that a couple of churches had been set on fire and Harsha retweeted some of that news saying, burn it all down. 
which is to any reasonable individual, obviously, a statement of figurative is a, is a figurative comment is to look at the system and say, yeah, it needs to be set on fire and it needs to be replaced. And the far right mobilized um, the NDP's fucking attorney general, um, like called her out online as well. And the the abuse that she has received for the last two weeks has just been abhorrent. And now this has culminated in her resignation at the BCCLA. And it's just so disgusting to see her treated this way. I mean, if you don't know who Harsha Walia is, um, spend the, like the second this episode is finished, spend like 20 minutes researching her and her work because she's like the primary um, source in Canada on borders and on uh, immigration and migration and movement and how borders are used to control and to cause harm. And her new book, Border Borders and Rule, uh, is definitely something that, sh- that you should pick up if you um, have not yet read it. And it's just so, I mean, I, I have such an amount of respect for Harsha. Um, and she's an activist whose work I've, you know, it's impossible to not see her work if you're on the left in this country. And I've, you know, never met her, but I feel like it's so funny. It's like 17 years I've spent watching her work, I would say from afar. And she's just so steadfast and she's so excellent. And when the BCCLA hired her as the executive director, I was like shocked. I was, I I thought it was an incredible statement on where the BCCLA wanted to go, which is like actually protecting civil liberties in this country in the way that they're under attack all the time, like doing literally what the organization should be doing. And so total solidarity to Harsha from, you know, this podcast and from us. And I, I don't know. I don't know what we what what like there is to do next other than to then say, so what does this also mean just in general for the left and for critics and people who um, who are vulnerable to being um, pushed out of the organization that they're in if their speech is considered to be too spicy for for the far fucking right, as if anybody should care what the fuck they think. Yeah, I mean, it's really stunning that it's the Civil Liberties Association, right, that the, where this is happening. You know, she she's resigned. They've put out a letter that um, to me rings quite cowardly uh, in the way that they've responded to her resignation. Uh, and I think that this whole this whole saga uh, must be contextualized in, into what's what, el- what, what else has happened, what else other people have said. And, you know, a few weeks ago on this podcast, we talked about um, the disgusting way that uh, Minister Carolyn Bennett spoke uh, to uh, directly to Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, in response uh, of you know finding these this the horrific findings of uh, these graves of of um, Indigenous children who were killed um, at residential schools um, and her her reference. Uh, to Jody Wilson-Raybould as someone who, I don't know, had no right to talk about these things because she got a pension. What what consequence did someone like uh, Carolyn Bennett experience? She felt bad for a couple of days and had to say sorry? You know, like, who who was, was um, uh, making sure that, you know, she resigned? Who was apologizing for her? Like, I... You know, that to me, this is a person who is has a position of power where she actually has an impact on the the lives of indigenous people right now and her callousness um, towards the lives of people who have been killed um, and her callousness uh, uh, towards people for whom, you know, she has a whole portfolio that she is responsible for Um is is pretty disgusting now and then we have Harsha who uses a common turn of phrase um, and who is responsible for ensuring that you know that people's civil liberties are protected but doesn't have the sort of power um, that someone like Carolyn Bennett does and we like the the, the response from society um, and of course I know that it's um, a particular pocket of society but the response to 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 run her out. I mean, they know what they're doing. They know that it's more. It's it's not about what she said. It's about who she is. And uh, seeing like a window open and trying to kick down the door to try to to make sure that she is not um, 
and her and her effectiveness and the type of activism that she stands for is not at a place where there is some power, the BC Civil Liberties Association and the sort of resources that they have to put behind the sort of work that Harsha does and can do. It's really quite disgusting. And that, but this is the way, this is the way um, uh, that uh, Canada is. Um, and I could not be more disappointed. Like what a, what a cowardly, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really, uh, quite a loss. As you say, this is about who she is. And it's also a signal to anybody who is, um, steadfast in their opinions and who knows clearly what right and wrong is and what justice looks like and what justice doesn't look like. And it's, it's a really, it sends a really scary signal that, that if you are the kind of person that um, doesn't bow down to pressure and that will always say what is right uh, and true based on the experiences and the research and the activism and the ex- whatever, everything that you have, um, that you will always be subject to being fired, that you will always be subject to being harassed out of a job. And and <laughs> like that added layer that this is the BCCLA is obviously ridiculous, <laughs> but it's it's exactly how speech is controlled in this country. And let us not forget that the head of the of the federal organization, the CCLA. Oh, what what was his like? Did I forget what tweet what he tweeted that was really gross, but that should have lost his job. But remind me what he tweeted. Oh no, it wasn't a tweet. <laughs> he. I think it was murder, Nora. I think that's what you're referring to. Was it murder? Yeah, yeah. He fucking. He got in a confrontation, quote unquote, by ramming the back tire of a cyclist in Toronto. That that cyclist got infuriated because that's a very aggressive move for a car to do. My God, I don't know how I would react to that. The cyclist grabbed onto the side of Bryant's car, of this guy's car, and he smashed the cyclist to death by driving up to 80 kilometers an hour on a downtown Toronto street into garbage boxes until Darcy Allen Shepard was killed. And and Michael Bryant, who is the former attorney general of Ontario, did ne- never went to trial, never was, uh, you know, was never found officially guilty. And it's just like, and this guy fucking has no problem being at the head of the CCLA. I mean, if I wrote this in a story, it would be like not believable. Like this is this is not fiction level bullshit. This is like beyond that. Now, speaking of speech, we, we wanted to, to close our um, kind of last episode before our summer break, just encouraging our listeners to think a little bit about rhetoric and the importance of rhetoric. And this is because we suck at it. Like, <laughs> Nora, the, I feel like the left really is poor at our control of and mastery of rhetoric and I think that the right is really, really good at it. And I think if we are not aware of how rhetoric operates and how rhetoric is used as a tool, um, we become vulnerable to being uh, swayed by this kind of really harmful propaganda that rhetoric can be. Yes, totally. And I'm glad you clarified when you said we are terrible at it, because I actually think that you and I are pretty good at it. I know we're pretty, we're pretty, yeah. We're pretty, pretty good. <laughs> rhetoric is such a funny thing. I mean, <laughs> I have this, like, every time I hear the word rhetoric, I just have this wonderful memory of one of my closest friends who um, went back to college when she was a little bit older and was going to college for a very technical program. But all the students had to take a course on rhetoric. And <laughs> she calls me up and she's like, what the fuck is rhetoric? And, and why the fuck do I have to take this class? <laughs> And I was like, what word are you trying to say right oh now? It was God. very funny. Um, and and it, like, it, it's one of these things that, yeah, it, it is actually a weird concept if, if you've never really kind of, I don't know, studied rhetoric or read about it or thought about it, because it's just kind of like the way things are. And so much of who we are in society, we are coded into certain kinds of rhetoric um, such that we actually don't even hear rhetoric, you know, it's good rhetoric, <laughs> especially. Um, and it's and it's mm-hmm. that in, in you know impossible to hear, impossible to see, and touch, impossible to touch um, re- uh, kind of rhetoric that is so so effective. 
And I'll give you an example of, of something that I'm thinking of right now. Um, and maybe you'll disagree. Maybe, maybe you won't think that this is a, uh, an example of excellent rhetoric. But when the Conservative Party last year put out a Labor Day video where they talked about, like, protecting workers and specifically trying to reach the working class in this country, I thought that that was such an excellent show of rhetoric because it, they were like, they didn't give a fucking rat's ass that it was all a lie. They didn't give a fucking rat's ass that obviously the NDP would call them out and so would the liberals. They didn't give a rat's ass that the unions would be like, what the fuck is this? You don't speak to our members like this. They were like, we are going for it. We are going to pump this up with um, feeling and emotion with images of working class people doing important stuff all across this country, right in the moment where the, the pandemic was getting worse at the second wave across Canada. And I just was like, holy fuck, these guys are masters, mm -hmm. masters mm -hmm. at rhetoric. Yeah, that that's a really good example. Another good example uh, from uh, that is relevant, super relevant right now is um, the infusion of the idea of cultural genocide as what has happened in Canada. Yeah. Cultural genocide and that becoming a normal way to talk about like the literal genocide like the own like the genocide like there's no qualifier that needs to be put on that right but it's become really commonplace to talk about um one um the 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 harms that the the entity that is canada has inflicted upon indigenous people as historical that's that's a rhetorical uh, way of talking about things and also to say that it is a cultural genocide um, you know when Stephen Harper uh, stood up in the House of Commons and and used that phrase uh, in his apology uh, to indigenous people in what year was that at some 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 point in the the 2000s region um, you know that was a moment where uh, this kind of there was like a shift in the way that media started was was referring to uh, what is happening and has happened in Canada as cultural genocide and that being acceptable. There's all sorts of other um, examples, you know, and like things like you know what's one one of those things that's really impacting my world right now is this idea of critical race theory. Like that's a really um, a good example because. Uh, it just shows how important um, rhetoric is. Uh, critical race theory being like a really specific legal theory that is like only taught in very specific law schools, mine being one of them, <laughs> and not something that is taught like across the board to children everywhere. But it's being spoken of as though that's what it is because um, conservatives really do understand rhetoric and have gutted the actual meaning of this word and created something else. Other words that um, uh, uh, conservatives or concepts that conservatives have employed are like, you know, this, the use of the words like snowflake, um, the use of free speech, the way we talk about uh, virtual signaling, all of those things that have started, you know, in like a, a right wing corner of the Internet and then has somehow bled into our normal lexicon and that we sometimes on the left have even accepted and brought into our own language and started reflecting back. Um, that is really, ooh, really terrible. And the way that we use rhetoric a lot is to actually, um, you know, signify to one another who's in what group, you know, <laughs> on the left, which, which feels really like a, a, a huge missed, um, understanding of the power of words and how words should be used once words have mm. once meaning is given to a concept it can be really really powerful and really really meaningful um, for example the concept of cultural appropriation now I have like some critiques around the whole thing and maybe we could do an episode on that one day but the idea of this as a concept uh, being brought out into the world was very powerful. It allowed us to speak about a particular phenomenon in a way that we were maybe not able to speak about so specifically uh, before. And uh, that is an example of uh, the left using rhetoric, but it's so rare for us to do that in, in such an impactful way. Yeah, I don't actually know how the part of this episode where we give ideas on how to do rhetoric better 
uh, is going to go. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I'm just going to stick with the what's the most easy to, to talk about, which is to to mention that it isn't just these concepts that you talked about, which are, are which are so um, powerful. I mean, I was talking to you, Sandy, before we started recording about how I made a perfectly reasonable comment within a Facebook group in my local community. And some random guy was like, oh, wokeism has showed up. Wokeism is here to talk about the police. Um, and what's really weird about that is this is in French, right? And this is like a fucking concept now in French. It's like, oh, oh le, le, on a the wokeism dans notre groupe, il y a the wokeism. And it's like wokeism. Like, are you f- like, what the fuck? How did that fucking happen? How did it happen that this concept has been so com- completely biz- like mutilated that now like some random motherfucker in my neighborhood who's pro-cop is telling me that I'm like infecting the group with wokeism. But it isn't just that. It's also like the most basic ways we even talk about government and we talk about society. And this is where I think the left is weak because the left actually buys it and just is like shoveling it into its mouth. So every time the fucking NDP talks about small businesses, we have to protect small businesses. We have to support small businesses. My favorite small business. So all these are great. It's like, why the fuck are you talking about small businesses? Like, what is a small business? Are you talking about a business with 10 people? Are you talking about a business with 100 people? Because those are both small businesses in this country. You know, what do you, which ones are you talking about? Are you talking about Tim Hortons? Or are you talking about fucking Jimmy's fucking fine teas or something? Um, there, there's a difference, but it's all been boiled down and that, that it all comes from right-wing rhetoric. Same with talking about budgets and talking about deficits and how like the deficit is so big, the deficit is so important, the debt is so important. Um, we need to have, um, we need to have economies of scale. We need to have, um, efficiencies. We need all of the fucking weasel words that all government fucking people, all people in the opposition use to try and, 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 um, and telegraph to the, the population that they're they're fighting for you. And the thing that I find so fascinating is that, you know, there's a huge desire right now for authenticity. And you can see that everywhere. You can see it in a whole bunch of different ways. And I feel like authenticity is something that the left has never really understood. And it's a huge problem because the best rhetoric comes from someone who authentically believes what they're saying. Um, or who can authentically put forward this idea of whatever it is that they want us to imagine is coming from someone who you're like, no, that person believes it. And like the extreme version of that is someone like Donald Trump. Like he was so authentically like gross that you could sit there and see like, oh, no, no, but he's still talking in a way that like he fucking is fully behind what he's saying. He might not believe it. He might totally believe it. It doesn't even matter. But he was so authentic in such a fucking gross way that it was actually very easy to see why he um, was able to sway so many people. And the left just does not have the same appreciation for authenticity and is instead always chasing authenticity in a very contrived way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not just the left, unfortunately. This is also... Um, you know, just like the media or just generally like how people understand rhetoric or, or, you know, if you don't understand rhetoric, how dangerous it is that you could just like repeat it. I mean, um, you know, what you just said uh, just a few moments ago about the SIU story that that, that says that, you know, um, it, the, the police show up, the, the man answers the door, goes to another room and is dead. You know, like the way that police and policing um, bodies or police bodies that are meant to keep police accountable, regardless of whether they do or not, speak about um, speak about the police is so powerful. Those rhetorical moves are so so powerful. Like the police involved shooting, or like the police involved death of uh, of, of of a civilian is has become the common way of discussing when a police officer fucking kills someone like if you know that the police officer fucking shot and killed someone why can't you say that the police officer fucking shot and killed someone those are not words that um imbue like intent or imbue like what whatever is going on that's just literally what happened if a police shot and killed someone if a police shot and killed a baby in northern ontario the way that you talk about it shouldn't be there was a police involved shooting baby died You know, like the baby didn't just die. The baby was killed. And we should be able to speak about these things honestly. 
But because of the impact of rhetoric and how rhetoric is used, um, it has shifted the way that we narrate stories to one another and how information comes to us. And that shifts the way that people understand that information. It shifts the meaning of the moment. And that is really, really critical. I think that the way that conservatives since really the 80s till today have become such masters of rhetoric has impacted um, anti-black violence, police violence, like this, the idea of black and black, black on black crime is a rhetorical move that, you know, this is a thing that doesn't exist. And if, if you don't understand that, you know, Google it because we don't have time to get <laughs> into all of it through this episode, but it's <laughs> such a powerful idea, you know, black on black crime, even though it's been debunked and we know that it doesn't exist, it continues to show up. Um, you know, I'm confronted with it so often uh, from people every time it's like black people deserve justice, black on black crime, climate change and the climate crisis and how we talk about the climate has been thwarted by uh, really clever rhetoric, really clever rhetoric on how we discuss jobs, on how we discuss work and opportunities, but also just how we discuss the climate and uh, the questions, uh, that the rhetorical questions that people ask um, on the air to, uh, to try to, to really shrink the importance of this thing that is literally destroying human life. Um, you know, really pick a topic and we could figure out how the conservatives or how conservative um, actors have effectively used rhetoric to really harm how we experience um, all sorts of different issues in our world. And we have just got to be better at noticing it, calling it out, refusing rhetoric, refusing to use rhetoric that uh, is harmful. And also, let's be clear, it's not just the conservative party. The liberals are master of rhetoric as well. Their their rhetoric is just a lot more technocratic. It borrows a lot more from economics and the business world and things that have been repackaged to sound like their common sense, right? So I guess I'm left with wondering with, that, with what I mentioned earlier, what the, <laughs> what do we do about it? How do we fix this? I mean, I think what you've mentioned already is really important that we don't repeat some of the stuff. We don't use it. We understand we can see through it, but it does have to go beyond that. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any confidence that the NDP is going to be able to lead the way on this. Um, already, I know there was um, like the the NDP in Nova Scotia has announced their platform for the next election, and the highlights that I saw read as if they were written. I mean, five years ago, like there's just no evolution, and, and the pandemic hasn't kicked any evolution into into order uh, with within that party, um, at least yet. I mean, I guess I could still be surprised, but um, how do we amplify good rhetoric on the on the left? to try and get it to mainstream sources. And I asked this question knowing full well that we don't have the broadcast channels that uh, the right has, which is a huge part of this. We don't have access to cultural industries in this in this country the way that the right does. And and those of us who do, who, who might have a bit of an in, who might have a bit of a platform, you know, like I, I can get something published in McLean's now, you know, it's taken me three years, but I can do that. Um, or I, I can I can talk to a national audience on television once every three weeks, um, but that's that doesn't at all stack up against like literal like hosts and journalists and politicians and flax and and PR people who are just pushing out this rhetoric all the fucking time. How do we how do we break through that? Yeah, I mean this is and this is what I'm hoping that people will think about um, as we as we leave. But you know we we have been successful in moments, right? Every time that we give give a concept a new name, you know, and we 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 make that concept, the idea of that concept more popular, like that is how we're using rhetoric. And so I think that one of the most powerful concepts that the left has used um, in the last, let's say, 20 years is the idea of the survivor talking about survivors, um, people who go through um, either. I think it really started um, with uh, folks who experienced sexual assault um, and uh, has has gone on to, to to be used in a lot of other concepts. But this this in, instead of only referencing victims and this like 
this tiny turn of rhetorical use of using the word survivor um, to denote that people who experience sexual assault or who experience some sort of um, oppression or degradation to their humanity are still alive and are still dealing with and still require some sort of uh, recompense or all of that is imbued in the idea of the survivor. So, you know, if the if the idea of rhetoric is kind of like um, making your head spin a little bit, I hope that that's a good example of how we are able to um, to, to kind of shift how we talk about things. And even just a small, small shift of words can hold so much meaning. And I was thinking about this a lot as we were talking more and more about residential schools. Like even the idea, like whoever decided we're going to call these things residential schools was doing some, some really interesting rhetorical bullshit. You know what I mean? And like even that, we could think about how we refer to things, you know, like, um, you know, there's, there's a way that we should really be critical of how we use language and thoughtful of how we can use language to shift the meaning of the things that we're talking about every day, or to be clearer about the meanings of the things that we're talking about every day. And, Yes, that can be on the, the large scale like you were just talking about, Nora, but it can also be within conversations with one another, how we use language. And, uh, you know, I just, I think we have to be a little bit more careful. And so this is just an appeal uh, for that and for us to just be a little bit smarter. Let's not just accept uh, things as they're written, but really try to think about, I mean, maybe it's like too meta, like to be uh, thinking about this type of shit all the time. Like Nora and I are like, <laughs> when we're reading a thing, we're like in our heads, like, what does it really mean? Um, but I think it's useful uh, to do that sort of thing. And so, you know, please let's be a little bit more thoughtful with our language and with our rhetoric. Well, but beyond that, though, too, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking of other kind of tangible things that people can engage in. You know, I see a lot of people on the left arguing about like the correct language to use. And mm. you can have those arguments. I mean, some of them are really, really interesting. Some of them I'm not always sure that they're coming from the right place or that maybe one of the conversation holders is actually a cop wasting someone's time. But, you know, because mm -hmm. we have to be very aware on social media, we don't actually know who we're talking to. Um, but I wish that I saw the same kind of ferocity that that people on the left will will engage with one another pointed towards the right and to mm -hmm. actually identify these terms and explain why they suck and offer a solution that's better and and I think that there's a lot of power in that and I I, I don't see people doing that enough uh, I don't see people doing that enough either with with media, which is really easy because we're all like if you're online and you're seeing a, a, an article pop up, and you're like, what the fuck? Why the fuck did this did CTV say that? That's that's obviously those are weasel words, you know, actually like calling out and identifying and helping do like collective education on being able to spot the stuff I think is really, really important. And then also, if you are someone who's running uh, for election, if you are part of an of a collective or an organization like to really resist internally uh, using these words. I can think of a lot of not-for-profit not organizations that fall into the trap of using these kinds of piece of shit words all the time to try and appeal to a mass audience. And it's like, mm -hmm. look, as someone that like does my best to try and make sure that the language that I use is, is number one, clear, like I'm actually saying what I mean to say, and number two is formulating things in a certain way that's really important to, to help people understand. Um, it's, it's, I mean, you might have a really annoying internal debate about whether or not you want to call something X or Y, but it's, it's probably worth it. And this is something I learned mm -hmm. in the student movement. Like we had a lot of debates about the terms that we used and how we wanted, um, to never like one kind of silly debate that we always, always, always had was to never just say tuition because the idea of tuition was education. But when we said tuition fees, this was this idea that you would actually pay for knowledge. Right. And it was actually a really helpful way to help initiate people into understanding like that just the basis of paying for for knowledge is unacceptable, is really is really is mm -hmm. really fucking unacceptable. And so I like that kind of thing is actually, I think, really helpful. Yeah, the idea, like, I mean, this is another really clear example, the e equating the idea of tuition with money, when tuition, the actual word tuition means education, is such 
a an example of clever use of rhetoric like the the word tuition for a lot of people was emptied out of what its true meaning was and has come to mean a fee that people pay which is like just so gross it actually means education and so we should be clear when we're saying tuition fees uh, that we're talking about fees and when we say free tuition we're actually talking about free education right and I also remembered the third thing I wanted to mention I remember a post um, a while ago from Harsha Walia who was talking about you know, anytime you want to say oppressed identities or oppressed people, like there's a there's a better and 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 more accurate way to to talk about this. It's to use the word marginalized. It's to to not say that someone is oppressed by something, but they have been actively marginalized by something, which is by a, a system. I like those kinds of, t- of of changes to our language. I think is so so important. And um, and then on top of that, uh, to to then really look at what is effective on the on the right, what is effective in the way that they formulate certain ideas and certain kinds of rhetoric, and and say, well, what does that look like for the left? What does a video done by the Conservative Party trying to re- reach the working class for Labor Day look like if it's done by the NDP? Well, in my mind, it's actually not just a very slick video that might be made by um, a really innovative and artistic, you know, video team, let's say, but that also then has content that's radical, right? Like this is, this is then the real issue is like, then we're talking about radical politics and we're putting radical politics into the mainstream and in, and enough of this, like, oh, well, you can't win with radical politics. Oh, you can't win by talking about like the maximum program. Oh, you can't win, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, sorry, the NDP can't fucking win. So like, maybe we can try something else. And even if it's like not all winning strategy is per the, I don't know, the conservative fucking analysts that decide these things, um, you start to actually mainstream really important radical politics and people will respond to it positively. And, and this is like the most important thing. This this can be a popular um, this can be a popular message. And by popularizing it, we actually can then talk about radical politics in a way that everyone can get behind. Agreed. Okay, well, that is it for Sandy and Nora for just a few weeks. So again, we will see you on August 15th. It has been quite a year and we appreciate you being a part of our um, little podcast community uh, over this really difficult year for people, for us and for a lot of you um, that, you know, has been just so weird what a weird year (laughs) for many of us Mm -hmm. just being kind of stuck inside but this uh this podcast uh, has been really wonderful uh making it with you Nora for me it's been wonderful and uh I'm glad to to take a few weeks off but I'm already looking forward to what will be discussed when we come back (laughs) bye Sandy bye Nora (laughs) 